This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading today comes from various selections from the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord one turns away from evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Good morning. We're in the second week of a little mini-series that we're going to do on the book of Proverbs. I say mini-series because it could take multiple weeks and months, but it will probably not take as long as it took to get through Mark, which was a year and a half. Uh, So a little mini-series on uh, the book of Proverbs. We said last week that 90% of our lives are lived in this realm of wisdom, in this place that the scripture describes as a place where the rules don't necessarily and directly apply to what we ought to do. These places where we have to make decisions between what seem to be uh, good and both moral uh, options. Um, I found it really interesting this week in City Bible Reading, that initiative where we ask you to read through the scriptures privately each day, and then we look to interact in community. And 1 Corinthians 7 was this Thursday. Did you catch how Paul was living in the realm of wisdom? Uh, over and over, uh, multiple times, he would go back and forth between this is what God says, so this is holy, inspired, from the Spirit of God, treat this like a command. And then he would go and, and occasionally say, at least twice he would say, for example, in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, um, excuse me, this would be an example of the Lord's direct command, uh, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. But then multiple times he says this, this is not from the Lord. In other words, it's not a direct command, but it's from me. And multiple times in that text he says, this is my judgment. In other words, this is my decision. This is my wisdom. This is my opinion. And what he's talking about in that chapter is, is, is uh, marriage and divorce and separation and sexuality. And he's saying, this is how you have to look at what's ahead of you and think about what God has said and, and what may or may not happen. And you've got to enter into this place very wisely. For example, in verse 25, he says, to the betrothed, that is those not yet married. He says, this is me quoting scripture, in view of the present distress. So when he's looking out at what's in front of them, He says, I think your plan should be to stay as you are. Don't get married. And he says, why? Because those who marry have worldly troubles. And he keeps going and he says, why? In this context we're looking into, in this situation in history, the unmarried man and woman, they are anxious about um, how to please the Lord. So if you stay single, you're going to be anxious as to how you can please the Lord. That's good. But if you get married, 
A married man and a married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please their spouse. That's bad. And so he's saying, is it wrong to get married? No. But is it foolish? Maybe. Why? Because it will open you up to temptation in the future where you might sin. It might also be a decision you make that causes your life not to be full of rest and peace and abundance and flourishing, but it might cause strife and shipwreck and all kinds of harm and trouble. If you think about the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is this book where in the very first seven verses it says, if you want wisdom, that is the ability to see what's coming, to plan the best possible plan to walk through it, to lead others humbly through it into a place of flourishing and get to the other side. If you want wisdom, study this book. This book offers as a prize the ability to look at 90% of your life and make good decisions that bless you and the people around you. From the Proverbs, is it wrong to talk a lot? No. But is it wise? Probably not. Why? Because by talking a lot, not something good or bad, right or wrong, you open yourself up to future temptations. Boasting, lying, gossiping, not telling the truth, thinking that you're wise in your own eyes. From the book of Proverbs, uh, is it wrong to walk down the road of the prostitute's house? No, but is it wise? Probably not. Why? Because you introduce yourself into new scenarios, situations, and temptations where you might shipwreck your life, like the smell of things and the view of things and the calling out of that woman to anyone who will come in and from what she says, enjoy her, but in fact, enslave the one she calls. Uh, From the book of Proverbs, is it wise? I mean, this is incredibly applicable, this series. Is it wise for a freshman in college to have a credit card? First, is it moral? Is it wrong? Probably not. Is it wise? Probably not. Why? Because when they go buy that piece of pizza, they're thinking, $2. You know, I don't really have $2, but I have this credit card. I'm gonna put it on the credit card. By the way, buying something when you don't have the money for it, that's wrong. So you open yourself up to temptation by having the credit card. And then you buy the piece of pizza for $2, and you're like, well, you know, I'll just roll this in with all of my student loans and I'll pay for it for the next 40 years. And you know what? It's gonna be great because I'm gonna get to pay $1,000 for this pizza pizza. What a great piece of pizza. Is it wrong to have a credit card? Nope. Is it wise? Probably not for a freshman. Why? Talk to a lot of the young adults, especially in tonight's service, they're living in debt. Do you wanna know the temptations they're opened up to? Not being generous and tithing. They're opened up to uh, fret and worry. They, they are made uh, subject to uh, not being hospitable. All these things are wrong. These things are sins. They started out with a foolish decision, not a wrong decision. Do we see the difference? We said last week, uh, chapter one, verse seven, um, the, uh, the first text read to you by Michelle, we saw that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, The author of the Proverbs says to us, do you want to know what to do in life? Pursue this book, and this book will help train you in how to treat life. This book will train you in wisdom. And then it says in verse seven that the beginning of wisdom, the foundation of wisdom, the source of wisdom, the first principle of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So last week I said very briefly, I would give you an introduction on it, which I did, and told you that we would come back to it and spend 
considerable time on this topic. What is the fear of the Lord? If it's the starting point for living successfully in 90% of our lives, we should probably do well to be motivated to think upon it, learn about it, and ask God to produce it in us. Let's pray. We continue to go back to James chapter one in our hearts and minds and remember that you say if we lack wisdom, we should come to you and ask for it. That you give it to all without reproach. You generously and graciously give to those without reproach. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus, we are without reproach. We thank you that we are righteous in your sight because of the one who was all truth, all righteousness, and all wisdom. In the name of Jesus, we ask for more wisdom. We ask for you to give it to us for you to bring it about in us and for you to be glorified through it. In your name we pray, amen. If you just consider the word fear, the fear of the Lord, and you think through what this word, how it can be translated, um, think through the semantic range, if you will, of this word fear. And if you look back in um, the history, um, uh, going along with when Solomon was alive around 1000 BC, and look, how did this word, the fear of the Lord, how was it used? Uh, The word can really be used in a pretty wide continuum. On on one side is just sort of general respect. And on the other end of the continuum is utter terror. That this same word fear can be used to mean respect and terror. The way that the Proverbs uh, use the term the fear of the Lord and the way the Old Testament over a hundred times uses the fear of the Lord is, is certainly not just respect because you can respect your enemy but not necessarily follow them, love them, and do what they say. And at the same time, it, it, the, the way it's used in the Bible is not utter terror either. We'll talk more about that in a, in a little bit. But the word fear, just some synonyms for you. That This beginning of wisdom is respect, reverence, awe, enjoyment of, relationship with, trust in, worship of. That if you just look at what does the word fear mean, that's what will come to our minds. If you look at what uh, the fear of the Lord is through those more than 100 times that it's used in the Old Testament, you can get a general sense that the fear of the Lord in general is the love of the Lord. That in the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord are used as synonyms, that they're the same. As one increases, so does the other. If you look through the Old Testament in general, you'll see that the fear of the Lord is an appropriate and accurate response to God's covenant, to God's promises, to who God is and what he says he will do. If you look in general at the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord, in summary, is everything that we're supposed to do and be in response to who God is. That the fear of the Lord is a rather massive concept in the Old Testament. But as we move forward, in a a minute, I'm gonna give you two really quick points from the book of Proverbs as to how we can define the fear of the Lord. But before we do, I wanna go back to this idea that it's not terror. The fear of the Lord is not terror. It's not being afraid of God's judgment. If you trust in Christ as your savior, The fear of the Lord does not mean terror. If you don't yet trust in Christ as your savior, you need to know that you should be terribly afraid that one day he will bring justice and judgment and wrath and he will make all things right. But for believers, those who trust in him, particularly those of us who are on this side of the cross, when we hear this phrase, we're tempted to think that someone is scared of the Lord. Like the beginning of wisdom is to be scared of the Lord. Be very, very scared of the Lord. Like that could be a really cool bracelet like WWJD. Are you scared of the Lord? No, I'm scared of the Lord. Everybody scared of the Lord? Don't hit me, Lord. 
This is not how the word is used in scripture. Listen to Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? So what's your response to him? To fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul. Look at Proverbs 19, 23. It's the last proverb I put in your worship folder. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Whoever has it, so grammatically and poetically, it refers back to the fear of the Lord. Whoever has the fear of the Lord rests satisfied. Resting satisfied and being scared are not the same thing. Try and convince your five-year-old who just had a nightmare hey, you're scared, perfect. You should be resting satisfied right now. Go on back to bed and go to sleep. Have some deep sleep up there, buddy. Being scared, resting satisfied, uh, satisfied, dramatically different. And yet the Proverbs say the fear of the Lord is how you rest satisfied. It's gotta include what God could do to us if we weren't believers, but it can't mean terror. Think about Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has a strong confidence and a refuge. And then I read 1 John 4, 18 last week. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And he defines what he means by fear in this sentence. The fear that has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the one who fears God's punishment has not been perfected in love. So with that general idea of what the word means and with that sort of overarching theme of how the Old Testament and the New Testament uses the concept of the fear of the Lord, we're gonna look at a couple of these Proverbs that I've selected uh, and talk about this way. And I have three points and they're starting now, but just so you know, the first two are really quick. Don't, don't freak out. It is a somewhat long sermon, but it's not that long. Uh, the fear of the Lord is a position and it won't take me long to talk about that. It is a posture Again, won't take me long to talk about that. And it has a predecessor. That's a weird one. I didn't say predator. I said predecessor. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. That one will actually take us some time to unpack. The fear of the Lord is a position, a posture, and has a predecessor. And these first two points, position and posture, I'm not really going to defend much of what I say. I'm going to define what the Proverbs say about the fear of the Lord. I'm not going to really argue with you about my assumptions in the text, but instead I'm going to just give them to you from the text. I'm trying to define the fear of the Lord, not defend it. And then in the last point, I think I'll give what is the most persuasive defense for it anyway. Now, turn back to your uh, scriptures or the worship folder insert that we gave you. Go to chapter nine, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is a position. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you think through Hebrew poetry, if you think through how parallelism works in poetry, the second line further describes the first. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the, the, the author is letting us know he's gonna add to that concept. He's not gonna be contrary to it. Sometimes it'll say the wise person this, but the fool this. In this context, in this verse, he's adding on to what he has already said. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So this verse is telling us that the fear of the Lord is further defined as the knowledge of the Holy One. This is the position that our brains should take in understanding the fear of the Lord. It is the knowledge of the Holy One. Knowledge, it means consciousness, appreciation, grasp, 
perception. So just being aware. So the beginning of wisdom is the awareness of the Holy One. A word used for God that means sacred, holy, separate, apart, exalted, enthroned, victorious, divine. Did you notice how Aaron had lots of songs about holiness and majesty and height and exaltation in the worship service? The reason is because the beginning of fear is understanding that God is so high and so massive and so amazing that my human tendency ought to be to fall down in his presence in awe and reverence and worship and fear. When I was in seminary, I took uh, several classes from a professor that actually some of you uh, still take classes from, uh, John Frame. And early in my first course with Professor Frame, he introduced us um, to his favorite illustration at the time. I don't know if it still is. It's been over a decade since I took classes uh, from John. But he had this favorite illustration or this favorite image um, that his mentor actually, Van Til, uh, often used. And, And the drawing was very simple. He wrote it on the board the very first class. And I tell you, every class, it was on the board and alluded to. And the drawing was this, a big, big circle. And underneath it, a tiny little circle. And he would often start the class just drawing that illustration on the board. And he would love to say he could make any question that anyone in the class asked. He could take it back to the big circle and the little circle and answer it and be like, well, if you just understood my illustration here, you could answer your own question. I mean, you could ask him, what is the color green? And he would take it back to the two circles. And from those two circles, he would often just begin to rant and ramble on about what these two circles meant. There is a God, big circle. You're not him, little circle. There is a God, and his presence and reality dominates you and overshadows you. Even if you're in denial, everywhere you look, you see him. There is a God, and while I can see him in nature and the Bible, I can only see a tiny portion of him at any one time. So it should make total sense that there's a lot of him that is mysterious and unknowable to me at this point. There is a God, he is vastly, significantly, exponentially more powerful, wise, brilliant, and loving than me. There is a God, but I'm created in his image. Little circle, not square. I'm created in his image. There is a God. I'm totally dependent on him for everything. The next beat of my heart, the next breath I take is a gift from him. There is a God and I am his creative capital. As his creative capital, I I have to submit to him. I have to know that he has something to say about how I live my life. In fact, he gets to tell me how to live my little circle life. There is a God. He's paying attention to what I'm doing with my life. There is a God. I've tried to live my life as if I am the God. I have tried to act like I'm the big circle. I've tried to act like maybe I'm a little circle and there's a bunch of little circles revolving around me with no big circle anywhere to be found. There is a God. And I have worshiped, created things as if they're God. I have acted like success and beauty, and power, and money, and career, and children are the big circle. And that's why my life is a mess. There is a God. You're not him. There is a God. You're created in his image. The fear of the Lord starts with this cognitive position (laughs) that there is 
a God. And that I should direct, reflect, and look to him for every component of my life. The fear of the Lord begins as a cognitive position. But as you and I know, we're not just cognitive beings. Not only do we have a mind that needs to begin to wrap around the reality that we cannot wrap our minds around it, but not only are we minds, but we're also hearts. The, the, the definition that I want to give you from Proverbs for the fear of the Lord also assumes the position or the posture of your heart. The fear of the Lord, a posture. If you think about that wonderful little illustration and image, you could see what different postures of the heart might be. Some of us live in denial. Some of us, as those who are just a little circle under a big circle, we live in denial. Uh, The Bible tells us that we know that he is there, but we like to blindly live life as if it's not true. Some of us under that big circle, we live in rebellion. We know that God is there. We know that he's supreme, but we love to live our life with our fist clenched towards heaven in defiance. Some of us uh, like to think of ourselves and the posture of our heart as being cowering fear or paralysis, continually afraid and scared of God and not trusting his salvation promises. But the biblical posture for our hearts And quite frankly, if you're a believer, what I just said probably defines little quarters of your life. Some places were in denial, some places in rebellion, some places in fear, but hopefully in the increasing place of our heart is the posture described in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. The posture for our heart is this. This is a classic text, a classic text that so many commentaries, uh, so many preachers, um, so many through the ages have looked to to define the fear of the Lord. You can see in verse 7, it says directly, the fear of the Lord. And most commentaries see these three verses as different aspects or perspectives on it as it relates to the posture of our heart once our minds get around the idea that he's God and we're not. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, The original word here for trust means to lie down uh, face first, helpless to the ground. (laughs) Exposed, not able to defend, limited sight. With all of your heart, with all the essence of who you are, with the center of who you are, lay it down, face down before the Lord and trust. And do not lean on your own understanding. This doesn't mean like lean on a wall to get a break. It literally means uh, don't have as a support to your life, your understanding or what you think is true about reality. Don't assume that your intellect and your perspective and your reasoning are capable of reaching truth, that you can only reach truth to the extent that you surrender to him and his revealing mercy. Verse six, defining the posture of our heart for the fear of the Lord, which leads to wisdom, which leads to 90% of our life. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. This is a command to acknowledge him, to know him. It's a command to know him in the realm of all of our, our ways, all of our paths, all of our walking, past, present, and future are those things that we're planning The wise one, the one whose future paths are straight is the one who fears the Lord. He lives in the present, acknowledging Yahweh in every circumstance. He knows that that God, Yahweh, the Lord can be trusted. His whole heart trusts in him no matter what is happening right now. In all your ways, in the current path you're in, acknowledge the Lord. 
As you look at the past, as you look at what you have gone through, those are also part of the ways of your life. In all your ways, acknowledge him. As you look at the past of your life, he was sovereign when you went through whatever you went through, good or bad. Acknowledge the Lord. In the same regard, as we look to the future, and one of the huge ideas of the book of Proverbs is that, in fact, we should be people of meticulous planning, that we should look to the future and brainstorm and pray and knock around ideas in community, and that we should plan. But this text says, the one who fears the Lord acknowledges the Lord in future planning. As you consider the future, it's not your kingdom you're pursuing, it's his kingdom. As you pursue and consider the future, it's God who is sovereign, not us. As we think about and plan our future paths, it's God we need to know, not ourselves or some other man. The fear of the Lord says, I'm blind to the future, and if I could see it, I'm powerless to do anything about it. But God knows the future, and he has all power. I will acknowledge him. I will know him in my ways and in my paths. Verse seven, the posture of our heart. Be not wise in your own eyes. Is obviously very closely related to, to verse five of the second part of that poem, uh, that, that line of poetry. Do not lean on your own understanding. This is telling us, be humble and teachable. Don't think you have it figured out. Don't think that all you need is what has been taught to you so far. I, I was, I've really been considering this idea because ever since I realized that the book of Proverbs says the only thing worse or more dangerous than a fool is someone who thinks they're wise in their own eyes. I've been really thinking about that. And I started to think about the women and the men in my life who are really wise. They're the people, like I could go to them for five to 10 minutes and I could get more out of them than anyone gets from me in an entire year. It's incredible how wise they are. I've been, I began to think about what describes them. They constantly say that they're fools. They constantly say that they have a ton to learn. They're willing to listen to anyone and they look at any circumstances if God has something to teach them in that circumstance. They do not be wise in your own eyes. So here's the question. If that's the position that our minds should get around to. That's the cognitive position. And if that's our heart's posture, if that's what the fear of the Lord means, the question is, does it have a predecessor? What comes before it? What precedes it? How does it come about? Because think about what I just said. As you think about your past, acknowledge him and trust him in it. How can you possibly do that? I said, right now, whatever you're going through, and a lot of people in this room are going through really hard things, I said, acknowledge him. He's orchestrating your path. Like, how can he possibly be good? As you look to your future and it's incredibly bleak and you're not sure how you could be anything but discouraged about it, it says he'll make your paths straight. How can you know that that is a promise he will keep? Here's the question. How do we get to the place where our minds admit out loud and worship what we know? And how do we get to the place where our hearts really lean into him and trust him in everything? We have to know that something precedes the fear of the Lord. Go back to your passages. I'm gonna show two verses to you from the book of Proverbs that talk about the predecessor, the one that goes before the fear of the Lord. Chapter 16, verse six. By steadfast love and faithfulness, Iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Do you see that? What comes before the fear of the Lord? 
steadfast love, faithfulness, and the atonement of sins. Go back to chapter three. Go back to this classic text defining the fear of the Lord and the posture of our heart. Look at verses three and four in your worship folder. Hopefully it's clear that three through seven is an entire chunk of scripture. Verses three and four, what precedes this classic text? Before you trust, before you don't lean, before you acknowledge him, before you're not wise in your own eyes, before you turn away from evil, before you fear the Lord, what does the proverb say needs to be done first? Chapter three, verse three. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness abandon you. Don't let steadfast love and faithfulness leave you. Don't let it out of your sight. The second part of verse three. Bind them, steadfast love and faithfulness. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Like a garland or or a necklace or a massage, put steadfast love and faithfulness on your neck. That place that the Proverbs says is willful and stiff on a fool. Like a poem or a piece of art or a profound truth, take steadfast love and faithfulness and write it on the cold, hard, dead places of your heart. Before fearing God, We take steadfast love and faithfulness. We know them, we live them, we bathe in them, we apply them to our will and to our heart. So what are they? These two words, um, which I will not try and pronounce in the Hebrew, I'm not nearly as good as Hebrew as I think I might be in Greek. But they're found over and over throughout the Old Testament and over and over, dozens and dozens of times, 40 sometimes these two are found together in the same verse. If you separate them out and just look at steadfast love of the Lord or faithfulness of the Lord, hundreds of times you'll find that this is describing God and who he is. From Genesis through the prophets, he is one that abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a God that shows steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a God who sends out his steadfast love and faithfulness to preserve and save his children. He's a God whose steadfast love and faithfulness are to be declared by his people morning and night. The psalmist says the steadfast love and faithfulness of God are the foundations of his throne, so they're underneath him. They reach to the heavens and to the clouds, so they're above him. And he sends them out all around them to prepare his way the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. The most classic text in regards to steadfast love and faithfulness, this thing we're to bathe in so that we might fear the Lord, so that we might be wise is Exodus 34. Do you remember this? God is revealing himself to Moses. He's giving Moses his proper name. He's like, don't call me God. That's like calling your wife, wife. He's like, call me Yahweh. That's my name. It's like saying Trisha instead of wife. It's like, I'm revealing my name to you. I'm revealing my character to you. I'm revealing my way to you. I'm revealing to you how I'm going to deal with you and these people you represent. Listen to what he says. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So what do they mean? What does it matter to us? How will it produce fear in us? Steadfast love means this. It's translated in the most literal translations as loving kindness. It means absolute, total, unconditional love. 
It means unmerited favor. That means you don't earn God's love. It means unsolicited grace. That means you don't even ask for his grace. He brings it to you. And then faithfulness is a word that is translated most literally truth. He's a God of loving kindness and truth. It means absolute, total, unconditional commitment to truth and righteousness. If you're paying attention, you might say, now, wait a minute. How do those two go together? Steadfast love and faithfulness, loving kindness and truth, grace and justice. Those feel like a conundrum to me. They they don't feel like they would ever go together. If he's totally loving, we might be tempted to argue. He he, he could let us off the hook. He, He could forgive us. He could have mercy. But that would compromise his justice. But if he's faithful and holy and truthful, then, then, then he could not be gracious. He, he could not be forgiving. He, he would never be able to let us in. It's exactly what God says himself in Exodus 34. Listen to verse seven, right after he just defined his name. He said, I'm gonna keep steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But I will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to just be gracious and merciful and do away with the guilt as if it didn't happen. He says, I'm going to visit that iniquity down the line. He's like, I'm not just gonna act like it didn't happen. I'm both forgiving and just. How is he both? Good news. John chapter one, verse 14. This is Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Listen to what he's full of, going over the brim of, overflowing in, full of grace and truth. I was reading a book this week. I have four or five books that I try to read every year. Um, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, uh, Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel. And I was reminded of a story in reading Ragamuffin Gospel this week about a guy named LaGuardia. You've probably heard of him if you've ever tried to fly into New York City. Uh, but I won't try, I'll tell you, if, if Fiorello, I'm not Italian, I don't know how to say that. That's his first name. But uh, Fiorello LaGuardia was mayor of New York City from 1934 to 1945. And uh, he was the mayor during one of the most critical times in New York City's history. They were recovering from the Great Depression, and they were enduring uh, the worst days of World War II. His nickname became Little Flower, which is what his first name means, and he also had a little uh, uh, carnation in his lapel at all times. He was an incredibly popular mayor. Um, He would ride with um, firefighters to go fight fires. He would go uh, with policemen into speakeasies, which were bars during the Prohibition era, and he would be parts of of the the gunfight with the mafia. Um, He he would, uh, when the papers um, would go on strike, he would get on the radio and read and describe the comics to the kids so that they would not be left out on Sundays. He was an incredibly loved uh, mayor. And one uh, bitterly cold night in January of 1935, LaGuardia uh, turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. He walked in and he dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. 
Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her and her daughter's children and herself and that they were all sick and, and that they were all starving. And the, but the shopkeeper said um, that the bread was stolen and, and he refused to drop the charges. And this was his argument to LaGuardia. It's, it's a real bad neighborhood, your honor. She's got to be punished. She has to be punished so that we teach other people around here a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. Will he be gracious and forgive? Or will he be truthful, faithful, uphold the law, a man of justice? Will he mete out the consequences described by a law? Or will he release the tattered and battered old woman? After sighing, he turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exception. It says here it's $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his own pocket. He extracted a $10 bill, tossed it into his famous sombrero, that, that sombrero that was collecting penalties and fines that night, and he said, here is the $10 fine which I now remit. Furthermore, he said, in addition to this, I fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, would you please collect the fines and give them to the defendant? The following day, the New York City newspaper reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady set free who had stolen a loaf of bread. 50 cents of that amount was contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner. There were some 70 petty criminals, people uh, guilty of, of, uh, of traffic violations, guilty of petty crimes. There were New York City policemen in the room. There were reporters in the room. Each gave 50 cents. It says in the paper the next day that they gave a standing ovation for the privilege of doing so. Back to steadfast love and faithfulness. The first half of the story illustrates the gospel, but only so far. It only goes so far because what the widow did is somewhat understandable, maybe even excusable. And the price for her crime was only $10. But in the gospel, we are guilty of gross rebellion. We're guilty of insurrection and treason. And the price is not $10. It is our lives. That's what justice demands. And just like in this story, the, the judge, the great judge, the great final judge does not take $10 out of his pocket and put it in a sombrero, but he takes his most valuable possession, his son, and puts him forward in payment for the crime. This story illustrates the gospel in a second way, but only so far. The woman is given $47.50 for no effort of her own. Look at chapter three, verse four of Proverbs for what we get. It says, bathe in the steadfast love and righteousness of, and, and faithfulness of God. Put it on your neck. Put it on your heart. Verse three, chapter three, verse four. So that you will find favor, literally the most common word for grace. So that you will find grace. And it says, good success but probably should be translated good 
reputation in the sight of God and man. The New American Standard says, so that you will find grace and find a good reputation. The NIV says, you will find grace and find a good name in the sight of God. What will cause us to trust him in everything? What will cause us to bow before him in everything? What will cause us to fear him, give our lives to him, cherish him, love him, trust him? It's the gospel. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the power of your love. That if we were to write out the fear of the Lord in bullet points and tell ourselves to do it, we might be able to complete some of them, but never with the heart designed by your word. But if we will receive your grace, and if we will bathe in it, and if we will write those on our stiff necks and your character on our hard hearts, we will respond in fear, righteousness, and obedience. Would you do that work for us? Would you give us eyes to see you? Would you give us hearts to love you? Would you give us the desire to obey? In your name we pray, amen.